welcome to Stop Button Favorites, a podcast of the website thestopbutton.com. My name is Andrew Wycliffe. My website is thestopbutton.com. Stop Button Favorites is a monthly podcast coming out on the 20th of every month. Each month is a new commentary track of a film I've written about on the Stop Button. I pick some of the movies. Readers of the site pick the other movies. This week I picked the movie, and that movie is Man of Steel, directed by Zack Snyder. I'm going to be watching the 2013 Warner Home Video Blu-ray release. It stars Henry Cavell, Amy Adams, and Michael Shannon, and I am starting the movie right now. I went into Man of Steel with very low expectations. I read the early reviews and thought about not going at all. I think my wife like sort of just said, no, let's just go see it because it was like a Friday event thing we were going to do. And I'd heard the one release track of music, didn't like it, don't like Christopher Nolan's superhero movies, didn't like Watchmen, I um, didn't like the casting of Michael Shannon, I didn't like the casting of Amy Adams. I don't know who I would have preferred to be cast as Superman. I didn't like David Goyer writing it. Basically, there was nothing about this that I particularly liked. Until here... I could see the John Byrne Man of Steel visual references, but made very modern and futuristic and gritty. But the way the music works, the way the Hans Zimmer score actually works, and of course that's Ayet Zauer, who was one of the few casting choices that I actually was excited about because she was very good in a movie called um, Pandorum. And that is not her name. I just butchered it. But those are her initials. And then instead of getting the reference to Superman the movie Money Shot, we instead get a Lion King reference mixed with Star Wars prequel series. And at this point, I think my wife was sitting next to me going, what is going on? There, you've got a little dome reference there. It's one of the things I actually like about this is that Snyder's very subtle about his references to the, the Superman, the movie. And these costumes, of course, these look like tough versions of Queen Amidala's costume in the prequel, in Phantom Menace. So in the spanning, what was that, 16, 14 years, between Star Wars Episode One and this, this what looked silly in Star Wars Episode One, what looked um, unacceptable in uh, Fifth Element, now is the norm. These crawl-looking costumes are no, now totally acceptable. Uh, 
This is about when Michael Shannon won me over. See, Snyder is one of these guys who doesn't film on sets, or he was famous for not filming on sets. And he clearly, somebody talks some sense to him, probably Christopher Nolan, who cares? Um, ooh, and there we go. We've got Zod as the uh, xenophobe. The, you know, where's his chaplain mustache? And this is important later because we have to remember this because when Zod makes sense, anytime he makes sense, uh, you have to remember that he was revealed, you know, at four minutes in to be Hitler. And now for the, the first big surprise of the movie, that um, Russell Crowe's going to be a badass, that uh, Jor-El is now an action star. And this is a very Warner Brothers thing to do when you think about how uh, they did the Sherlock Holmes where they reinvented Sherlock Holmes. It's Warner Brothers trying to be creative without actually creative. Which, which actually follows through on their TV shows. If you look at Arrow... Uh, it's Batman Begins with Green Arrow. I actually love how the lens flare is for the viewer over Jor-El's shoulder because it, it, it adds a fake amount of depth to the CGI battle sequence. And now, you know, Jor-El's a scientist, but he's also a man of the, the fantasy creatures. And this sequence looks more like a fantasy book cover than anything else. And I've never heard anybody say anything good about it. Oh, at that moment I was going, wait, what is that? Something's happening. Something's very familiar is happening here with these zoom in and zoom outs. What is it? And I've now since seen Dawn of the Dead, so I know that Snyder did it to a point in that. But in this, I didn't realize what it was reminding me of until I saw Gaeta and realized that it probably, uh, Zack Snyder probably was a little bit aware of how Battlestar did that too. Or somebody else ripped it off, whoever his DP was on here. And now, we get the bubbles drowning out the action music. And now we get the beautiful calm. You know, it's a scene out of Blade Runner, or actually, if you look at that, it's a scene out of The Matrix. It's kind of a shock Warner didn't try to integrate these with The Matrix at some point during the popularity of The Matrix. I'm fairly certain my wife was audibly, um, audibly and negatively commenting on um, Russell Crowe in a wetsuit at this point. What are we looking at? It looks like a caveman skull. I had not read Superman in... I read Birthright, and I think that was 2003, but I know they redid his origin a couple more times, so I had no familiarity with that. Was that a warning shot? 
Didn't seem like a warning shot. Good thing he's got the flying dragonfly. I'm not sure about the DVD, but the Blu-ray's got a very nice amount of grain. It appears to be computer-generated grain, but I appreciate the grain just the same. So much detail is put into Krypton here, yet we never get establishing shots of it in the way that... Uh, I mean, this would be the closest thing to an establishing shot, and it was over pretty quick. How can we not like Jor-El? He is conscious of his horse, or his... That's kind of sad, actually. Of course, it's only going to be alive for about two more minutes before the planet blows up. And this is, you know, if it, just because it's not exactly the same as Superman the movie... This scene is homage to that, and I love it. I love how Snyder handles it. Not a very likely technology, that liquid mercury. A lot more uh, humanity for Lara in this one than the originals. So it's a little bit better, but still very patriarchal, which is what it needs, really. I mean, there's a chance for them to change that, um, but right now, this is all a bunch of sci-fi stuff, I don't know. This shot doesn't work because, like, who cares that it's... We don't actually care about the Christ baby yet, so... He's got to ride with the detail, and... And by detail, I mean the detail of the shots and of the production design. Got the singing, which I never really noticed before. Does it crash through the ceiling? I can't remember if it crashes through the ceiling. 
There you go. You just got a Battlestar Galactica and uh, Apocalypse Now reference in in a Superman movie. And that almost looks like Lex Luthor's battle armor. Oh, that's kind of phallic. Again, I'm going to argue that the reason this is acceptable is because of stuff like uh, Star Wars Episode 2 being popular, that these, these intensely unreal-looking things um, have become acceptable. I think they'd have like an iPad they could check that on to see that. And the unexpected fight scene continues. There we go. It's classism. That uh, second guard there is about as quick to fire as a stormtrooper. Again, those computer systems seem pretty hard to use. And again, you're you're watching it going, wait a second, Zorel or Jorel can kick butt? Like, how is this gonna work? And you can to some extent you okay, see I love this part. See, one problem is very simply the codex thing is bigger than the planet blowing up, which is they it's uneven. Just because sound design is obvious doesn't mean it's not good sometimes. Shannon's performance is just great.
See, Snyder's ramping up the drama here because he doesn't have some for a while. Again, very, it's amazing. This is, you know, Flash Gordon with Empire Strikes Back backdrops, uh, special edition backdrops, yet it's totally, it's totally acceptable now. It's very weird. Being able to yell and be mean the entire time. That's sort of the, the glory of Shannon's role or performance. And Zimmer just going for it with the music. And then this utterly nonsense, like they're getting stuck in ice cocoons. Mostly just is a cool effect on her hair. But again, this is the studio that thought um, people were going to see Harry Potter movies because they were Warner Brothers movies. So, like, what what would just happen there? They the that huge ship is the Phantom Zone, I guess, right? So they're a bunch of them in prison. It's no wonder Krypton had so many problems. It's uh, they didn't really use their resources well. There you go. What was stupid in Dune and too hard sci-fi in Dune is now mainstream sci-fi. I mean, another thing about this is that the CG in it is faultless, so you really can't. You know, they grain it right, the CG's right. Once you can accept it, once you can accept CG, you have no problem with it. And now, without any explanation, we get the end of the world. And of course, it's much sadder. It's much sadder than when Susanna York and Marlon Brando died, because at least they were together. This is, wow, that's happy. And then let's see, are we going to get the Star Trek 6, uh, yep, Shockwave? 
So we get the Star Trek Six shockwave, and there we go. Now we're expecting to see Cal going through space. And here it is. Oh, wait. There's wormhole technology now. So he's just going to, you know, shoot out at is that Saturn or Jupiter. You could have done a huge, long, beautiful sequence with him going through the solar system. Instead, Snyder cuts it, which is... It alienates in some ways, because it, one of the most frustrating things about the response to this film has been people complaining it's not enough like the Donner ones, when, of course, they had Superman Returns and didn't support it. So, it's, uh, there's probably something about that. Another, I mean, there's a saying about you can't have your cake and eat it too, but it's prob- that's not accurate. But this, I sometimes wonder if it's, is he? Is he going to get squashed? Who knows? We don't even have his name yet. But he's clearly Superman. And some of this, of course, is that Snyder's making a movie for Smallville fans. You know? I mean, even if he's not, it's a corporate consideration that there are a number of Superman fans that became fans because of Smallville. Or that are going to see the movie because of that. Now, where'd he go? And now we start my wife's favorite part of the movie. Shirtless Superman. Burning Man CGI never goes well. This, of course, is more of a Superman 3 rescue than anything else. Yeah, the same thing that worked for the Krypton scenes, the blurring of the CG background doesn't work as well here in the real world. Which is interesting because, you know, I didn't want reality there, but here I want some more. There we go. Wife's favorite part of the movie. Not really. It's the part where he's getting his shirt in a second. The flashbacks. Which somebody said in the preview looked like Terrence Malick. But, I mean, I guess you could argue that this does look like Tree of Life in some parts just because it is um, the cinematography style. But I always saw it more of a Michael Bay mixed with Tarantino. Or, I'm sorry, Malick. Yeah. 
kind of eh about this. It's it's comprehensively done, all of the effects trying to show what he's seeing, but it's it's too much and not enough. Uh, we're getting too much information without being able to see it, but it's it's And this other, and now we get. Utterly plain, but also utterly effective. Weird school that the closet's open out. Well, no, I guess not. Well, convenient for this situation. And there you go. I mean, Superman's going to see the world in a totally different way. It's, then, of course, we get this. Is that Pearl Jam? But it's very different. I mean, we just had a completely traditional Superman movie moment, and now we're mixing it with this sort of somewhat comical mixed with all the girls are looking at Henry Cavill with the shirt off. When I was testing my new, or when I was running down the battery the first time on my new laptop, I played Superman, or I played Man of Steel on it and just had my wife watch that scene to let me know if the battery dropped too long. Okay, so that wasn't Pearl Jam. It just sounds like them, right? Doesn't it? Anyway. So now he sees the school bus, which is going to remind him of the school bus incident. And what's really funny is, is by the time he becomes the protagonist of the movie, we don't have these moments anymore. And this, of course, it's hard not to think of the 78 Superman. School bus also refers to the end of Superman the movie with the Golden Gate uh, sequence. And I mean, at this point, I think I'd read a little bit about 
like what they were planning to do, how they were going to build the history, but I had no, I had no idea. Some, I think I had read that it was intentionally going to play toward a Smallville uh, familiarity or something, but. The Kansas license plate. Is he going to save the fat kid who was mean to him? Of course he is. the Kevin Costner performance, and this is amazing. Now, it looks like a modern Wheaties commercial with the quick cuts. This was the scene in the preview that I was like, well, at least Kevin Costner's going to be good. I wasn't sure. I love that he has this workbench that he hasn't used presumably in 20 years, or I'm sorry, what, 13? along with all the ideas that they were doing research into aliens in the background. So that 
brings it back to the sci-fi movie thing. Nice Glenn Ford homage. Really smart Jonathan Kent in this one. So basically what we have here is we have the cornfield sequence. So I mean, I think that's actually what Snyder's greatest success is. He does these iconic moments while like being very reductive in them. Um, and here we go with the Superman 2 reference. Hey, isn't that lucky that he just happened to be up north and they found they found something? Wow. Something in the ice. Maybe it's the thing. But I think this is the last one where we're building towards something, right? Yeah, nobody saw Superman do that to a truck. I suppose it's less pettier than beating the crap out of him at the end of Superman 2. When the guy has no memory of the incident or whatever, or Superman isn't... I can't even remember in that one. No, he does remember. That's right, it was in the Donner cut where he just, like, goes back and victimizes this jerk. Eh, Whatever. Yeah, now we're actually switching gears. Uh, 34 minutes in, it becomes Lois Lane's movie for about a half hour. And it just moves so well. Oh, look, it's, it's Hilo. I think I saw Hilo and was kind of like, maybe Snyder knows what he's doing with those zoom-ins.
Okay, if I just muted out for a bit, I apologize. Um, hopefully, I didn't say anything too important, but I think I was having a technical malfunction with the headset. I was just saying that Lois, that Amy Adams is Lois Lane, has similarities to. Not a fan of that either. That. It, it pulls us away from Clark. Okay, so alien-inspired, slick Geiger. It's just very coincidental. I'm still can't get over that he was just looking, just hanging out at a at a bar without his citizenship papers, and got a job, and now he's hears about this discovery. Not the best um, interface design. Jorel coming back in some capacity. Also, I think I knew about that, but it it serves some very nice expository uh, requirements. Like there's more wonderment in the music than there is the actual approach here. Goyer suggests that the empty escape hatch is Supergirl, yet I guess she hasn't been cast yet, or they're not doing it. That one is Supergirl. Yeah. Flash photography, not a not a great idea. Um, the Nikon logo, of course. Good to have product placement in these, just like in Superman 2. He's got to have that calming thing going on.
I don't think we actually get to see heat ray or heat vision in the normal ways. Here we go, Gata. Isn't this the last, uh, not the last Starfighter, now it's Flight of the Navigator. But if you look at the composition of that scene, of that shot, it's, it's very, um, it looks like a process photography shot. Even though it's CG, this whole sequence could have been done with uh, mats or, and um, front and rear screen projection. Now we've got uh, back to Lois more than before. This is seven minutes later that we've changed the uh, storytelling style. So he can he can falsify his work history. That's weird. Not, not sure if I'd actually call that a Superman, the movie reference. But again, there you go. That that shot is not composed, you know, with CG's possibilities in mind. There's a, there's a class level to the movie. Shame Jorel didn't program for Lara to come with, because, you know, she would never want to meet the kid. After she talked about how she would never get to see the kid walk. It's very sad. And again, patriarchal. Which... They do better with here than in the Nolan Batman movies, but nowhere near.
where it could be to be interesting. See, the other thing about this this whole system here, it's almost like in the black and white, you feel like it's an homage here, especially to the serial or the TV show and the way that it presented um, George Reeves and Kirk Allen standing on the planet Earth. So there could be Krypton, 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 Kryptonians anywhere. Well, we've seen one of those before. I love how it's so destructive yet so happy. Again, looks like the, uh, the Lex Luthor costume. Yeah, he's not supposed to look like Stalin or somebody. Genesis Chambers from Superman... Man, the Man of Steel, John Byrne, I think. From 86 or 87? It's not really a good explanation of why they couldn't leave. Very fantasy, blah, blah, but... They move quick with it, because they got to sell it. And this is the one scene that they have to sell the most.
as someone who really didn't like the movie pointed out, this is the only scene of joyful abandon. Did Christopher Nolan come up with the Icarus uh, reference, or did Zack Snyder? Yeah, when Superman shows up, Snyder can do that thing where he sort of blurs the special effects backgrounds and it works. It's like Superman's the bridge between unreality and uh, the planet Earth for this. You know... If you want to call this anything, you call that a Supergirl reference when she flew across, what was it, horses or something. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways, this is just, um, sort of special effects showing off, uh, And it, Snyder treats the flying differently. I mean, this, regardless of it looking bad at the initial shots, it, of him, the over the, the back shot. And here we get the Superman, the movie um, thing, without a smile. So there, you know, we just went another five minutes and now we're changing again. We're back to her doing the investigation. And you got Zimmer's uh, score keeping up the pace. That's what Pete Ross made it to, IHOP. Product placement they're derogatory to. And then... This was actually the thing, even through the end of the movie, that I thought was the most controversial was Lois figuring it out right away. And everybody who I talked to about it who didn't like the other um, big change at the end... Um,
That is a silly looking cap. Did I already make the comment that I should have called this podcast the creaky chair? I guess they didn't want to uh, cast a Jeff East type uh, type fill-in actor for uh, Henry Cavell here. I'm just being quiet because this is actually a stunningly effective scene. I was just talking to a friend about how it shouldn't be so good, but Costner just makes it amazing. There goes the dog. Oh, it's Michael Kelly.
Do big city newspapers really have that big a staff anymore? Larry Fishburne, of course, being a Warner Brothers. Um, great casting choice. You forget about that with Larry Fishburne. That he can play a regular-ish guy as well as with the with the voice of Morpheus. Of course, this makes no sense because he was just home to um, see her a second ago, or he was keeping an eye on her. It, it, that made no sense. Him being at the graveyard. Well, he's got the hat, so maybe he he just went there straight after. I always found that weird that he, yeah, they didn't handle that transition well enough. It's like, by casting Diane Lane in this role and giving it so much more importance um, than it's had in the past, at least in the movies, is um, it sort of casts her as Hollywood royalty in a way that, eh, I don't know, I'd say Diane Lane really has reached. So now, 101.30 or so, uh, an hour and 71 or 61 minutes in out of 1.43 is basically where you get the rest of the movie starting. Now we're back to the aliens are coming to Earth. And Toby's going to tell us about it.
haha, cheesy Sterling Silicon line coming from uh, Harry Lennox. This isn't Office Space Lois, it's a Superman movie. Come look. It's Independence Day. Independence Day, of course, could be said started this ramp up to um, studios being able to do event movies versus specific filmmakers. So basically it's flying all over the world like Santa Claus. If they had structured it differently, I wouldn't... I mean, it's a very traditional structure. Even though you get the feeling the script had pieces that they worked on separately until they got to this point. How they constructed sort of the first act. And I mean, Snyder goes full boat with the alien um, invasion aspect. It's with a viral commercial. It's a fantastic integration of a something somewhat absurd. That is not how lights work. It's like a hue light didn't work right.
Not a very long story arc here with Lois on the run in her born identity moment. Because the Air Force works with the FBI a lot. Where does he keep the costume? And this is out of order, of course, so we can get Kevin Costner back in, which is, he's reading Plato. I mean, it's like, Sorry. Again, if you're wondering why I like these movies, it's because I'm a sucker for expertly done. Uh... So, there you go. About hour, nine minutes is when Henry Cavell becomes the full protagonist. This, of course, I believe is from uh, Grant Morrison's New 52 Superman. Um, for as long as I was reading that, I, I feel like there was a sequence like this.
Is that a line from Superman 2? Don't play games with me, General. This is definitely, this was a cover of an Action Comics comic. Oh, this scene in the trailer also worked. Toby. What's funny about, um, Richard Schiff being in this is that he was in a show called um, Murder in the First recently, and he was nowhere near as solid as, as he is in this, doing the Richard Schiff role. There you go, there's your Wes Anderson edit in the movie. I think this was also a point in the movie when I realized that the present action was going to be moving very, very fast through here. Nice we've got to have his chesties out, you know, for... And I mean, this is the the thing about Superman as a as a as a cultural thing is that people have been listening to him tell Lois to get out of danger since 1947 or eight, pretty constantly. More of the stylistic fading there. Okay, so now we have the scary helmets that remind me of some cheap horror movie from, or maybe even cheap sci-fi movie from the 80s, but maybe they'll do something cool in CGI like that.
That makes no sense. And now we've got the um, banter between the two of them that keeps up through the whole movie. Between uh, Christopher Maloney and the uh, Ursa stand-in. Very non-Independence Day handling of an Independence Day-esque scene. I, but by the spaceship flying away, that's, again, more Flight of the Navigator. I guess I never realized how very Dune all this technology feels. Feels very Dune. Again, we have Star Wars to thank for our complete disinterest in the docking procedure. It's not interesting to us anymore. So one of the things I've always noticed is the last hour of a movie is very different than the first hour. Um, obviously, because of how um, three-act structures work, but it even works with a movie that's not in a traditional three-act structure. I don't think they ever explain how this happens. Like, they never explain how they're talking right now and how Clark can see all this. Well, especially since... You gotta love Snyder, how, he, how he, he'll give these moments to... These sub um, supporting characters. But this is entirely for the audience. Obviously, the uh, the people on uh, Clark's not seeing all these images. It's weird. Because nothing else in the movie is quite like it.
again, no idea. how this is supposed to translate. It's visually effective, but well-acted, terrible exposition. Very Superman 3, his costume appears. Nice little Terminator reference here. That was weird. You just woke up. Was it a dream? Apparently not. And so, I mean, Zod and Superman become enemies right there um, in a way that they weren't in the second movie. But anyway, earlier I was saying you notice a difference in the last hour of a movie. Uh, you, you see it more pronounced now because movies all have the same, you know, general structure, which actually isn't based on action movies so much as romantic comedies. Where you're, excuse me, where you're talking about changing values, which is not a good thing to be worried about, but it's a reality of it. This is the guy they thought was playing um, Lex Luthor because he played Lex Luthor on Smallville or something. Or he was a Lex Luthor clone on Smallville. What I want to know is, were there other people in the Phantom Zone they freed? Because then he's like Khan. Oh, and now we got this more interesting uh, Hans Zimmer music. Good thing Lois knows what to do with the codex, or no, that's not the codex. I missed where she got it from this time. It's a thumb, I'm sorry, it's a thumb drive with Jor-El on it. Ah, the command key. What a cool name. 
I mean, it gives Lois a lot to do. She didn't have that much to do in any of the other ones. More action scenes with Jor-El using the Force, but the ship, he's, he's one with the ship. Far more interesting than, uh, didn't they do this on um, Star Trek The Next Generation once where Data like ties in? Is this his last? No, right. We're in for the Smallville fight. Lois Lane, action hero. So basically what we're saying is this entire ship has holographic projectors all throughout of it. You know, what's kind of funny about that is um, Virtuosity with uh, Russell Crowe had him digitize and undigitize. Uh-oh, Lois is in trouble. For whatever reason, I see this, this sequence here as more of a, like a Harry Potter-inspired thing. And there's your big second Jesus moment. And now you've almost got a, you know, it's the plane crash from Superman Returns. Mixed with a little bit of Flash Gordon in some ways. I wonder if that was intentional. Some of the production design for this Reminds of Flash Gordon uh, more than it does of a Superman movie, just in uh, the personal interaction with technology. It's very weird that they're aimed at uh, Smallville, but who knows? Makes for a cool rescue, and you can't have the helicopter in every movie, right? So, I'll say right now that about the second that that happened, I was expecting Martha to get killed too. She doesn't. Uh, spoiler alert. Here's the closest thing the movie has to a Spielberg moment.
Are there smoochies yet? Nope. Very convenient. That almost reminds me of the first one at the end. But yeah, I totally thought Diane Lane was going to get killed. As she, you know, well should as, you know, she's being, you know, manhandled by super-powered aliens. More Supergirl than uh, Superman with a fight scene in a town, right? It's almost like they used a lot of grain uh, to hide when they want to use to do cheap out on certain special effects. Like they don't have to do that much detail on the fire because they've got they've established they're gonna do grain. That was pretty fast. The ship landed pretty fast. I think this thing's called non, like as a joke, but it's not intended to be.
this struck me as a very un-Superman scene. Not that they're shooting up Smallville, but just how the the special effects are working. I mean, the perspective being from not the audience's point of view in that case, but from one of the witnesses. Oh, there goes that hop. Cannot remember how this works. It's almost like they were saying, look, we could do a cute moment. Like how all the Kryptonian women have uh, vaguely unidentifiable accents. This was actually, you know, the first shot of him, and nobody was impressed. They made a bad choice with that. So there you have your um, Superman's fighting against evolution that'll sell to the heartland. But again, you look at this scene and it's, you know, a Kryptonian wrestling match. It's got more in common with uh, 50s and 60s and 70s Godzilla movies than it does with um, any of the Superman movies to date. I think there was a Sears and Smallville in Superman 3, too. Is this the scene where he picks him up and spins him? And I mean, some of it stems from Snyder not actually um, caring about Superman in the same way. Oh, there we go. Full, full heat beams. Look at that U-Haul product placement. The ricochets on this alone would have killed how many people? But again, it's Snyder doing like a, a video game sequence without a lot of thrill for, for the player aspect. Instead, he's um, just going for how good it can look. 
I really liked the relationship between Maloney and her. It was so uh, mean. And it works because of him. The giant bug ships remind me of something, too, but I'm not sure what. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all of a sudden, but... So there you go. You never get to see Nan. I feel like this came out the year after Prometheus, which means doing the space jockey uh, masks was obvious. Still got almost 50 minutes to go, which is more than I thought. I've seen this. This isn't the third time I've seen it. So it's not like I'm not familiar with it. How did he get haircuts? How did Superman get a haircut? You can hear the flag at the beginning of that shot. Snyder's laying it on nice and thick. Which, you know, they had to do after the whole... uh Truth, justice, and all that debacle of Superman Returns. Now we get Kevin Costner back. The way they use Costner to... Superman at the farmhouse with a truck through the house. It's... And it, it's a nice Diane Lane performance, too. Like, she has a little bit of fun with it. A little bit of overacting. Even though that delivery sounded just like Adrian Barbo out of Swamp Thing. So those cops know who Superman is now, too.
Okay, so Nan is the guy in the back, presumably. I mean... Look, an evil... An evil German. Did they have the um, fully new baby at the beginning? Or is... Was that like just a... You know, like a reference to the first one. That doesn't make any sense that the codex is in his cells, yet he doesn't have to be alive for it. His cells would die. One of the interesting things about how Snyder deals with the alien invasion is it's from their point of view in that sequence, which is very, um, they've been, you know, humanized or, you know, we can, we're familiar with the characters enough to be familiar with their viewpoint that as opposed that shot of uh, Zod watching it descend. I mean, the other thing you have to realize is how little story there is here. The more story Zack Snyder has, you know, the worse he does. I think that's the only actual reference to Metropolis, which is very different. Um, Snyder's sort of disinterest in world building is very interesting. You have to wonder if there... I've never watched the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, so you have to wonder if, you know, in some... There's, like, outtakes of Michael Kelly being a, a doof or something, you know? Just there's comic relief somewhere. Because there's no comic relief in this movie, which people dislike about it. So that's interesting. Superman would never let that thing he has no idea about happen. Of course, Superman Returns had a city fighting scene that, or city, you know, disaster scene that sort of lacked um, enough ability as far as uh, CG action. 
because Toby reads sci-fi novels. Why didn't Clark just carry that with him? Theoretically, they should be pulled back in. Makes no sense. Now does Lois get a kiss? <laughs> there you go. There's your comic relief. But it's all in their flirting. Which has a lot more... Uh, direct promise than Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder's flirting ever had. I hated that cone effect. That was a little gratuitous. Some guy screaming in his car as he was being flung downward. So they're using the same call sign guardian even after the bad luck they had before. But I mean, this is the easily, you know, even when you think about the size of... how you could render one of the other movie's action sequences, this is the biggest you could... This is still the, you know... With inflation, it's still the... With CG inflation, it's still the biggest action sequence. I mean, Snyder's, you know, drawing or, you know, taking care of in 30 minutes, 35 minutes what it takes most movies to... Of the Superman, the movie era, that would spend, you know, an hour and 15 minutes of their hour and 45 minute one. And I believe this is the section, it is the section that has what I'm convinced is a Christopher Reeve reference. Visually, which is very interesting.
somebody's convinced this is a uh, John Peters giant uh, spider from the end of Superman Lives being brought into uh, being brought into this movie. The arms on the uh, terraforming device. So we have ineffective uh, rocket launches. This is a silly, uh, not one of my favorite uh, decisions of theirs, just because, eh, the giant thing versus Superman's hard to mentally comprehend. What's so um, different about how Man of Steel is structured, at least from what I've seen of, of modern uh, blockbusters, is that the supporting cast is handled very differently. There aren't um, – it's not like a Roland Emmerich movie. There's not a lot of personality in the supporting cast, even when it's a character actor. But none of these big character actors – or familiar ones get crazy performances. I love Shannon's work in this scene. Just because <clears throat> the anger, the pettiness. And there's your big virtuosity moment, once again. And now we get some glorious music for this uh, sequence. It's strange because... I'm having a sympathetic cough. No, it's very strange because um, 
until he falls down, you you have no context for how much danger he's really in. <clears throat> this is a good um, Snyder does a good job building this sequence too. <clears throat> He keeps it on a good scale with the three people, but then also with the astounding stuff in the background. The, the sound here. Again, good to have Larry Fishburne. Okay, in here, right here, I feel like when they were blowing his face, they gave him Christopher Reeve eyebrows. And then you notice Henry Cavell has a has a crooked tooth. It's it's like they should have explained how he could have a crooked tooth. See? Just like um, Snyder gives um, the Ursa stand-in, that little moment, he just gave one to um, Terry Lennox's sidekick. This, of course, is a gentle uh, Dark Knight Returns um, reference. It doesn't go quite far enough to be a full Dark Knight uh, Returns comic book reference. And that's because we don't know how to use flash drives. So there's supposed to be two... And now this story wraps up, this subplot, which is really, I like uh, Ursa's close-up there, or Fiora, whatever.
That's one of those lines, you know, Michael Shannon's got to be really good to be able to sell that line. What's so strange about the giant turtle landing in the city and Superman committing genocide is um, it feels like a Godzilla movie, like a uh, early 90s Godzilla movie with lots of spaceships. I'm thinking of Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla 2, I think. There was a spaceship in it. I was surprised they killed off Toby. Well, especially because Dr. Emil Ziegler's a comic book character with lots of uh, history in Superman, or whatever his name, no, Toby Ziegler, whoever he is. And this also, of course, has some V in it. Um, just alien invasions and V is a big deal. Well, maybe there'll be a spinoff where they're the only two survivors. Uh, Christopher Maloney and Ursa are the only two survivors, and they have a humorous, bickering relationship where they get together. At this point, there's like not even any danger. It's just, why isn't Lois affected? I, um, I sort of forgot that sequence. Now, here's where Perry finds out he's going to have to report an inter-office romance HR. Again, sometimes cheap sound design is the best sound design. Excuse me. I'm sure all of this photography was done in post. The um, the lighting, but clearly. 
But yeah, it was not what I was expecting. It, it was going for more of a realism than I was expecting from Snyder. <clears throat> Love Michael Shannon. I've actually never seen him in anything else. I've been meaning to. I didn't like that shot. I can see why they wanted to be able to do it for the first time, but I didn't like that shot. It just didn't look right. Again, the hovering. I don't like the hovering. Okay, so now's where I'm convinced that Snyder's going to do his Superman 2 reference. Like with that truck. Excuse me. That armor looked different on Zod there. Okay. Again. <clears throat> this sequence shouldn't be acceptable in a lot of ways. It's like too goofy, him jumping up that building. There you go, some more humor from Zack Snyder. Yeah, wasn't his armor darker a few minutes ago?
Okay, so this sequence. The lighting, it reminds me of Superman 2, the, the fight scene at the end. Just the way there's clearly artificial lighting. They're, they're making it too dark out for how much uh, light you can tell there was on the models. Since this was probably all very expensive CGI. Should have worked longer on that shot. Snyder just doesn't want to take any time with any of it, and I think if he had um, taken just a little bit of time with it, people might have been more forgiving. He, again, uh, like I said before, he gets his iconic shots and he cuts them a few seconds too early for them to actually become iconic. And here we go. So, I don't know how, I wonder how many times they had to shoot that. Cabell looks so young and like, he has those eyes from the earlier, the kids had in the earlier scenes. Probably CG that. But I was I was always point out that regardless of what you want to say happened, oh. where are they going? That's my question. Is are they inspecting those big um, arrays that are trying to find Superman or yeah those things?
And of course, at this point, Cavell is now Superman, so it's different. <laughs> the best part of that scene is that she's a captain. I mean, that's why it's funnier. Again, sometimes you're as cheap as you want and it works out. Someone pointed out that this scene makes no con- makes no sense. Like, why would Jonathan see him as, you know, a superhero in a cape? And somebody came up with some excuse about how there would have been other capes, superheroes, etc., etc. But the point is, who cares? Like, who cares? And I mean, I guess people do care, and I think that that's one of the things, is I do have a... Oh. The absurdity again that, you know, he can get a job at a newspaper. The Globe, I mean, they're all going to look the same, but it looks enough like the 70s, 78 Superman that it makes me look again. here we have some wonderful Daily Planet banter. And It'll be interesting to see how they develop the Superman character, or the Clark Kent character. I read one uh, earlier, early review that said um, it seemed like the movie wasn't setting up sequels, it was setting up to be done after this one, like a done in one, and it does feel like that, so... It'll be interesting to see if they can actually continue it. But what, the thing, the big thing, of course, that everyone has a problem with, for the most, however many people feel the need to talk about Man of Steel, um, feel the need to discuss the the death of General Zod, and. Um, I, I, until I was 26, 
I had never seen a version of Superman 2 that ended without the implication that he killed General Zod and uh, Nan and Ursa. And when I and I, they clarify it in uh, other versions of it, and I'm sure you can find things said about it that they weren't meant to be shown to be killed. But that's how it played when I was a kid. Like the Superman doesn't kill people thing. I felt like the situation they created with Zod was enough. So, unfortunately, this whole this movie forced me to say nice things about not just Zack Snyder but also um, David S. Goyer, and I try avoiding those subjects or that action of being positive about those guys. So it's very strange. But in some ways, I feel like Snyder's dispassion toward the film, uh, dispassion toward the character, and Goyer's sort of cynical look at it, really um, makes the difference. One of the funnier... No... So with with the stop button, I'm very careful. Emil Hamilton is who uh, Richard Schiff plays, and it is Eilat Zur. So I was I was pretty close. Anyway, um, it I'm very careful assigning star values because uh, well I think we brought it up on the podcast that Matt teased me about uh, Matt from Alan Smithy podcast teased me about my my positive Jaws 3 rating of two and a half stars And I always say that on the stop button, three stars is when I actually recommend a movie, you know, to the general person who comes across the site. And, you know, Superman Returns, which I haven't seen since the theater, it got two and a half stars. And um, no Superman movie except for the first one, the first two, the regular cut of the second one. Um, both get over three stars. I always, I don't always, I frequently wonder if there's some way of sort of doing a recommended movie search with the three, three and a half, and four star movies. But probably not on WordPress.com. Anyway, Deciding whether or not to give Man of Steel three or three and a half stars was one of the bigger um, artificial dilemmas I've created for myself uh, with um, giving stars on the stop button because I... I don't know. It's uh, 
it feels it feels like giving something if I if I do inflate stars then I can't get away with giving if I inflate stars to something because I want to like it or because I like things about it and I can't back it up um it takes away the the fact that I give a lot of negative ratings to very popular movies. A friend of mine, um, Jim Caldwell, who actually picked up Pump Up the Volume. The reason I'm talking so much over the end credits is because there's six or seven minutes, so I had no idea. I didn't stay through them in the theater. But uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jim Caldwell, who recommended or who suggested pump up the volume, which will be a later episode of stop button favorites. He, um, when I took the star ratings off the stop button in 2010 or something, I was telling him I was doing it and it was, it was for a number of reasons. And he's like, but I love reading, you know, this long, um, positive review and getting to the bottom, and it's got a one-and-a-half-star rating. And, you know, it's weird. Oh, Chris Cornell. So, you know, that's not Pearl Jam, but it's Soundgarden or something. Uh, I don't know. But, um... So, yeah, it, it, something like Man of Steel... I felt like giving it three with reservations was uh, disingenuous, and a three and a, a low three and a half was more appropriate. And it has, you know, a certain number of problems, considering it's about a, a guy from another planet who flies. But I think Snyder's. Um, scale for the film is perfect and I'm not sure the style is going to work he has a really short present action uh, the first two you know the first act and a half are so incredibly uh, manipulatively constructed uh, as, as the narrative goes between people one of the funnier not really haha funny, but like Stranger Things is that Warner hasn't released another version of this. Uh, everyone assumed there'd be a director's cut. And there was the one release and that was it. I don't know. I'm a sucker for beautifully lit city scenes and the destruction of Metropolis and the Daily Planet shot. That was all beautiful stuff. I do wish the rumor that they were going to insert a, a CGI Christopher Reeve as a cameo, I wish that had panned out, but I can't actually see that working the way Snyder directed the film. 3D, did not see it in 3D. These are some long credits. Movie's only actually 132 minutes. But, I mean, it is something you can't really easily make a sequel to because it deals so much with the 
you know, iconic Superman too. So there you go. They got the Defense Department to help out. That, that's going to save all their truth, justice, and the American way problems. A lot of Illinois filming. And... Yeah, so the goal of this was, I don't know, to try to explain myself at greater length. I hope that it was at least interesting, and I hope that I wasn't on mute that one time I said I was. Oh, wow. No way. John Peters has a logo. Wow. Wow. John Peters has a logo. That's crazy talk. And the movie is now over. And thanks for listening. Next episode is a very special, also superhero, very special episode, uh, commentary of Batman Returns with uh, me and Matthew Hurwitz, who was my co-host on Alan Smithy Podcast for many years. And um, we never got around to doing Batman Returns on Alan Smithy, so we're going to take a crack at it here on... uh, on stop button favorites and that one's going to go live on may 20th so talk to you next month and thanks for listening